Hello, and welcome to another episode of Kill Your Silos. I'm Jason Reichel, your host and RevOps evangelist. Every week we ask the question, there must be a better way to operate all this shit. And indeed there is. It's called Revenue Operations. And I'm joined this week with Kelsey. Hello, Kelsey. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. And you are the head of RevOps for Pet Desk. That's right. Um, and that's why I am so excited and interested to talk to you this week. Uh, I always like to start with a little bit because, you know, when I was in when I was in high school, I didn't know what jobs there were. Right. I didn't I didn't know. And so uh, one day someone came into an office, uh, it came into school and was talking about a, a job I had never heard. And I was like, I didn't even know this thing was a job, like how like I could go and pursue something that I had no idea that existed in the world. And so one of the things I like to start with on the show is how did you get from let's take you back to the high school you to now, how did you get here? Because I think it's really fascinating to hear people's journeys about how they ended up in this role, which when we were kids, let's be honest, that wasn't a thing that people knew about and it didn't even exist then. So how did you end up as the director of revenue operations and what's your story? Oh man. So I had a pretty, uh, I've had a pretty windy uh, career path. So when I was in high school, I really thought I was going to be a writer or a teacher. And when I started applying to schools, all I knew was that I wanted to get out of the very small Midwest town that I grew up in and wanted to go to the East Coast. Um, I did like the tour of colleges with my mom and was so fed up by the end of it that I just ended up applying and getting and going to the first school that accepted me, which was Emerson College in Boston went there for writing, very quickly figured out that writing and publishing is not what I wanted to do. Um, and then eventually transferred to Pratt Institute of Fine Arts in New York City, where I was a painting major. Um, after school, I, so I have a painting degree. Uh, after school, I kind of ended up um, falling into a um, customer service that eventually became a marketing role at a local garden center in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I was living, which was kind of my first exposure to graphic design, web design, and marketing. And when I left there, I knew I didn't want to stay in Albuquerque. I, I was planning on moving to LA. Um, and I decided that I... At this point in time, were you like, yes, marketing, it's a thing I love. Like, how, I, how, how connected were you to your job as being so, part of your personality at that point? Yeah, so I, I really, so this was back in 2009, 2009, 2010. So like behavioral marketing wasn't really a thing yet. Online was like, online marketing was sort of becoming something, but not really. Um, but I was doing some pretty cool stuff when I look back at it at this garden, like this little tiny garden center. I was creating like segmenting lists by hand to send out emails about like roses to people who bought roses last year, like doing like kind of cool stuff. Um, did a bunch of rebranding, but what I actually ended up getting most excited about was web design and graphic design. So when I quit that job, I decided that I was going to focus on design and build up my portfolio so I could move to LA. So I spent about a year just literally doing everything under the sun related to graphic design from print production to multi-page layout, like literally everything, built up my portfolio, moved to LA, landed a design, design job at a trade show company. Um, worked there for about a year, got let go. Then I worked for my first startup. Um, that was this little tiny startup in El Segundo. I was hired as a graphic designer, but quickly took over email marketing for them and was fortunate enough to work with a CMO who was right on the cusp of behavioral marketing and really started to kind of show me of like how you could personalize at scale and about developing personas. Um, and I was like, oh man, maybe this is really interesting. I like the I like the systems. I loved teaching myself like how to code for email. I thought I'd like to be able to use the data, and I didn't really know that that was like something you could do. Um, so I got that was kind of the first time where I was like, man, marketing is maybe where I want to go next. Um, they ended up going bankrupt. I went back to the trade show company and basically got stolen within the first month out of design into a mar um, a marketing automation manager role um, that developed into a director of marketing role. Um, so I kind of went all in 
on Marketo was the system that we were using. And I fell in love with it. Loved the system, loved the data, loved the strategy. And um, it, I, I learned so much in that role. It was the first time I ever used Salesforce. It was the first time that I ever had to be like in front of like C-suite and VPs and executives, like pitching ideas and presenting performance. Um, and the woman who mentored me showed me a lot about how, how to tell a story with data. You know, that was kind of her biggest thing is like, it's not good enough to just show numbers. You really have to like take people along a journey. Mm -hmm. um, this is something we always talk about where it's like, uh, I just did a podcast, not this one, obviously, but just did a podcast and got off of it. And it, the, co the, the content was about data and big data, right? And it was all about how, from my perspective, when I was talking on that show, it's like, uh, we have all this data, like it, what's important is the insights that we drive from it, the narrative that we want to tell right. or, or, or the hypothesis that we're trying to validate with the data, because that's what actually engages people. And that sounds like very much what your boss's philosophy was. Yeah, it, it really was. And, you know, she took she took me along um, and brought me along for the ride on like a huge data architecture project that was amazing. I, I put together trainings for Marketo for our marketing team, got a ton of experience there, which really set me up to be successful when I moved on to my next role, which was for an ag tech startup based out of Michigan, which is where I'm from. Uh, so I moved back home. I was hired in as an inbound marketing manager, was promoted to director of marketing after about six months, um, kind of brought together and built out the marketing team. And this was my first time really working closely with the sales team and working with sales leaders and working with product and working in a SaaS, in, in a SaaS company. Um, and what I loved about it is that uh, the, the company that I work for basically built like an app for farmers. So there was all this data that the, the, the users and the customers were inputting themselves that was super exciting, super rich, but nobody cared about it outside of product. And I was like, but we can use this data in marketing and we can use this data in, in the sales. Like, why don't, why don't people know about this? And it was I kind like of have a trend, like the, there's this yeah. trend now around first party data being entered by the user. Well, the Holy Grail. And then you had all this, you were on top of this mountain of information. Yeah. And I really feel like, you know, when I look back at it and I think about it is like, man, that was really, I was doing RevOps, but through like a limited marketing arm in that role, yes. um, because I had the most systems knowledge. So I became our Salesforce admin. I was helping build reports. I was working with our sales team and with our customer success team and our support team and obviously leading our marketing team. I was going downstairs and working with our product team because I was like, man, our, our product isn't working hard enough for us. We should be gating things. We should be um, really kind of leaning into the areas and being strategic about how we're pricing things. Um, and I kind of went on this just crusade of evangelizing how you can use behavior da behavioral data that the customers are inputting themselves to figure out who they are, where they are in their journey, how engaged they are with that, and then pair that actually with salespeople, target messaging around that. Um, so it, it, it sort of took me down this, it started to take me down this path that was a little bit more than what everybody thought marketing was. You're right. Um, when I was ready to leave farm logs, I took a huge risk and joined a like pre-seed stage startup um, called Bloomscape that is a direct consumer houseplant company. I was hired number two. Uh, I got hired like, I think it was six, it was either six or eight weeks before we were going to launch the website. Um, and I had never, ever done something that early before. So it was just everything from scratch. And one of the things that was really exciting for me is that, um, A, I had spent so much time kind of like cleaning up other people's data messes and poorly implemented Google Analytics and like horrible CRMs and all these things and terrible SEO. And I was like, man, like I can learn. I, I finally felt ready to sort of take all the mistakes that either I had made or had cleaned up after other people and was like ready to bring all of this experience together um, and launch the company. And it was wildly successful. You know, we went from zero to one million in monthly revenue in I think like nine months. Um, not quite sure what's, what it's valued at right now. They just closed a series C, I think. 
Um, but it's really, it really exploded. And because I was hired number two, I kind of did everything else at the company too. So I pretty much wore every hat there. Um, I built out our support team. I, um, built out our operations team. I put to helped launch, you know, helped work on the team to implement our ERP worked in, um, like merchandising and try to use data to like help us figure out what plants we should be selling and when along with all the things that go into a D2C company from a marketing perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so eventually I actually moved out of marketing there and moved into a chief of staff slash director of operations role, which similar to like all chief of staff roles, uh, it was a hodgepodge of things. It was mm -hmm. kind of like the redheaded stepchild, everything that, nothing, that nobody else wanted landed with me. There's a lot of special projects. There was a lot of like working very closely with the CEO and our board and preparing like the data that they needed, making sure that things, you know, that the other executives at the company were ready to kind of speak to their performance. And it was really my first time in an operations role. And I was like, this is where I belong. Like marketing, I, I was never good at just like selling the marketing and marketing the marketing. So I wasn't like, a, I don't think I was built for to be a marketing, like executive or marketing professional because of that. But operations, I was like, this is this is like my home. And um, when I was getting ready to leave, I was super burnt out. I'd been there for three years. My husband actually was like, hey, I think you should look at RevOps jobs. Like I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go back to SaaS and um, wanted to stay in operations. And he was in a couple of like networking groups and was talking about RevOps. And I was like, I don't even know what you're saying right now. Like, this is not a word. <laughs> and um, I started doing some research about it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is everything that I have loved about all my past jobs rolled into one job. Like the, the, the business community has finally caught up with what I've been trying to do through marketing in the last like four jobs that I had. This is amazing. Yes. This is what I want to be. And I was lucky enough to land the role at Pet Desk. Yeah. It's a, it's an insane thing to think <clears throat> that sometimes there's a job out there that you didn't even really know that existed that you've always kind of done. That was, yeah. that was the whole thing. Like, yes, uh, revenue operations is a, a thing that, you know, from a wording standpoint, RevOps existed in the deal desk space, but it really wasn't utilized. It was a very specific role. Uh, when we started Go Nimbly, we did sales, customer success, uh, marketing operations for SaaS companies. So it was like a BPO where we could help them because they didn't have the talent to kind of up-level themselves. Yep. And we called it the unified business stack. It was all the principles <laughs> of revenue operations, just didn't have the word yet. Um, yeah. And it was kind of like exactly the story that you're saying is like, it, it worked so well. And where it comes from, from my background is, I was a product manager and had built product. And then I realized, hey, operations can be built like a product. It can be on a release cycle. Right. It can be, it can be like prioritized based on impact. It can be all of these things that product in SaaS companies have kind of, you know, worked with developers to master. And then I, I developed this theory that any world-class revenue operation could sell any product, just like any product could be good. And those are the two flywheels of SaaS company, the, yeah. the revenue side and, and the, the product side. And then I started going, okay, well, what does the revenue side need to operate successfully? Mm -hmm. If we, if, you know, it's not the facilities, it's not all that stuff. It's like this, this uh, process is this glue. And uh, I became very obsessed, personally obsessed with, with that mission. You know, one thing that I always find interesting about revenue operations professionals and the operators in general, right? Because I think a lot of operators are probably revenue office people, but they're either um, don't have know the title, don't, then this is kind of what I wanted to talk about. Don't know the title, don't know it exists, yeah. or they're in an organization which has a very linear view of them. But any operator, marketing ops, sales ops, customer ops, just operation, have been bit so many times by only having a narrow view. And I find that every operator is trying to solve something holistically for the yes. business, right? Yes. Um, and so I, I found that pretty fascinating in your story. One thing I, I wanted to ask, I was over the weekend watching um, the big interview with Dan Rather. Do you know that? No, uh, it, I don't. It's a we'll YouTube it show um, where Dan Rather, who is totally out of touch, interviews people. Uh, and he interviews people who are kind of like hip and young, but he it's obvious that he really doesn't know who these people are, but he's doing yeah. his due diligence. And one of the questions he asked them is, what makes you, you? And so I thought for this episode, I would ask you, 
this question after going through all your background of what makes you, you? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, so I think what makes me, me is that I have a pretty unique combination of being both super creative, both in problem solving, communication, visual, like data visualization, um, project structure, writing, but I'm also extremely logical and very analytical. So I kind of hold these like two opposing forces in my brain at all times. And, you know, I think when I, when I look at my kind of like my, my career evolution and my story, a lot of it is like following one side of that and then getting pulled to the other and then starting mm -hmm. to kind of see how, you know, I think with, when I got into that like inbound marketing and, and kind of like marketing automation and behavioral marketing world, I was like, okay, this is like both sides of my brain working together. Um, but it was so early on that like nobody knew, like no, nobody knew the value of it yet. You know what I mean? Like it was, yep. it was, it, it wasn't appreciated. And I think, um, one of the things I'm not good at is like selling myself. So like I, I, I got a lot, I got stuck there because I couldn't really, you know, I would show numbers and like, these are the numbers. This is how we're doing. Like, I don't understand why you can't see these, can't understand what this performance is. You know, I, I, I wasn't great at like kind of telling that story. Um, but then as, as I kind of moved <clears throat> into these more cross-functional and more, <clears throat> excuse me, leadership type roles, it became abundantly clear how powerful it is to be, have the creative, have the data and have that like um, really strong kind of like organization, project, project management um, experience all rolled into one package. 100%, 100%. Uh, one thing that we're doing new for this season is we're asking people to bring something from the field. And, and what we mean by that is a lot of our listeners were, were enjoying the theoretical conversation of how people got to the roles and all that, but wanted more tactical advice uh, for doing something. And, and, and so I like to pose this to the guests is what is a lesson that you've learned from the field recently? Either a project that you're working on now, a project that was completed recently, or, or something that you, you feel like, hey, if I had to go do that over again, I would have made different choices or I would have doubled down on some choices um, for the listeners out there who are in the middle of, of, of doing this thing. Yeah. So uh, I love this. I love like tactical conversations. Um, so when I joined Pet Desk, I was really brought in to figure out what RevOps was supposed to be at, at Pet Desk. Um, RevOps did not exist before I got there. There were a handful of like marketing, sales ops, analysts, Salesforce admin people who all sort of worked um, asynchronously together. They all lived on separate teams. Um, our director of operations at the time kind of like just helped sort of collate all the projects they were doing, but it wasn't focused and it wasn't really like a, a true function. So I was hired to figure out what it was supposed to be. Um, this was a year ago. So there was some, th some things out there about RevOps, but not like, not a ton. There wasn't a playbook yet. It wasn't like, this is how you build a RevOps team. There was a lot of competing information, a lot of competing advice. And um, I, I kind of knew early on that I was gonna have to do a little bit of trailblazing on my own. So I, so I took, I took the approach of like, okay, let me, let me kind of prove myself like personally, let me show the leaders in this company that they can trust me. Let me show the end users on our CS team and our marketing team and our sales team that I'm not full of shit. Um, let me, let me get some small wins under my belt and then while I'm doing that, I can start to see and uncover like where some of the bodies might be buried or where some of the real issues are. Um, and I liked that approach because it's, it never works if you just go into a new org, especially if you're trying to build something like brand, brand new from scratch, it never goes in to be like, okay, this is how we're doing it now, right? Without getting to know the people who are already there, getting to know the company and, um, 
taking taking some time to sort of step back and listen and and figure out what what's really happening sort of under the covers, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that was my plan. What ended up happening though is that we um, we closed a round of funding, so we got a whole new round of investors that were a lot more hands on than what I've ever, ever experienced before. Um, and then we had a bunch of turnover on my team, on our sales team. We lost our, our sales leader pretty early on and it was like, okay, well now we just need to, we, we actually just need you to like do stuff. So I had to, I had to be flexible. I was like, okay, I'm still not going to make any big decisions in my first you know, month. That doesn't make any sense. I, I don't feel ready to make a recommendation of like team structure or anything like that because I just, I don't know enough yet. Um, so I, I pushed back on that quite a bit, but I still had to like kind of lean into the prove your value piece. So one of the biggest things is that when I first got there that I heard is that um, nobody trusted the, the data in Salesforce. And I was like, well, that's a big problem if people can't trust the data in Salesforce. So Salesforce had been implemented about a year before I got there. They had worked with a consultant. It was, there was no real internal expertise um, as far as like what right should look like for a CRM of that scale. And there was no real like executive champion who's, who was really like evangelizing it and pushing it forward. So there were a lot of like MacGyvered decisions that I could, like when, once I started kind of getting in the system, I was like, oh man, like, okay, I, there's a logic here, but this was a consultant just getting more money out of this implementation of this tool versus actually providing, you know, advice and direction on it. Um, and the whole company, everybody from the CEO to our, you know, our executive team to the salespeople were like, yeah, we just don't trust Salesforce. We don't trust it. So I was like, okay, this is, this is the thing, the first thing that I'm going to solve. So, um, I, focused on let's just make sure that there is a source of truth of data and that everyone across the board is reporting things the same way because that was the that when I started looking at it um there were a few big things there was one a lot of mistakes with our quoting like our quote to cash process um that was a causing a lot of data discrepancies, but also caused took a, too much time and a lot of the data discrepancy, like your MRR projected or that you thought you closed didn't match actuals, that kind of stuff. Yes, yes, okay. exactly, um, exactly. And there was um, everybody reported pulled reports on revenue in completely different ways. So our sales our sales leader pulled reports on revenue in a way that did not align to how our marketing team reported on revenue. So our CEO was getting two different numbers and none of them aligned to like his dashboard. Um, so it was just, it was just like mayhem and there was a lot of bickering about it. So I took time, you know, our, our investors had asked us to put together like a true sort of like end of month AR roll forward and outlook package for them. And I kind of took that as a, um, as a catalyst to help us like just start to trust some of the data, even if it wasn't in Salesforce. Mm -hmm. So I actually brought it out of Salesforce. I did kind of like the scrubbing and the filtering um, logically outside of the system, put together and automated it. So it just automatically pulled in from Salesforce into a Google sheet and said, okay, everybody, this is, this is your source of truth while we figure out all the system stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, these are the numbers we're going to be using. This is how I'm reporting things to the board. This is how things are being attributed. Like this is your source of truth. Um, dash, keep using the dashboards in Salesforce, but know that they have not been like reconciled against how the, these filters are set up. That's going to be an ongoing project. Um, so once I kind of got that up and running, our investors started to notice and they're like, oh man, this is awesome. We never get like we, can, we never just get visibility like this daily into data from our companies. This is great. Our executive team was much happier because they had a place to go to. Um, and then it kind of just like quieted down a little bit. So I felt really good about tackling that. I hated that it was like sort of a, a an interim solution, but it really kind of gave me, A, let me meet people where they were comfortable 
um, and B, it gave me just some breathing room to do the much bigger work of, you know, the historical cleanup in the system, making sure, you know, the transactional data flows through Salesforce in the right way, um, going through all the dashboards and all the reports that we had and making sure that all the filters were being used correctly and um, that they were being segmented appropriately, right? So it, gave, it bought me some time and it really helped me gain some trust. So um, I think as like a first big project, it, it sort of set me up, um, it set me up to be successful when I started making recommendations for what I wanted the RevOps team to be. Um, because everybody, everybody kind of trusted, trusted me now. And yeah. um, we went back and forth quite a bit as far as trying to figure out, should it be like a distributed model where I kind of act as almost like a, like a scrum master kind of like as well as a contributor and kind of work with the people who are already on the teams instead of moving them to a central team or do we go ahead and centralize it? And we went back and forth for several weeks trying to figure out what the right, what the, what the right org structure was going to be for PetDesk. And I, I sort of knew that eventually it was gonna to need to be centralized. And my, my take on that, and I'm sure you have opinions here too, but my take on it is that the real power of RevOps is that it, it needs to be agnostic. It needs to have the customer and the business as its, as its North Star. What's good for the business, what's good for the customer, period. It needs to be able to kind of rise above the, you know, the, oh, well, this was sales and this is marketing and, you know, all those types of kind of like inter-team bickering and ownership and things. And it really needs to be able to prioritize work that gets done and processes to make sure that it's aligning to what's right for the business, what's right for the customer. Absolutely. And um, so I knew that eventually I wanted to have the team to be centralized. However, a lot of the people that I had sort of inherited kind of from this loose org, this distributed model had been with the company for four or five years. And I didn't want to force anybody to just be like, move to just move to my team. Like that didn't, that also didn't feel good to me. So what, where we landed was right now, let's keep it distributed as, you know, as the, or the organization matures, the RevOps team will slowly become a centralized function. And that's exactly what happened. So um, we lost a couple of those people who had been at the company for a very long time. Um, when that happened, we lost our marketing ops and our sales ops person. Um, we had lost the Salesforce admin like a couple of weeks after I started. And I started, I was um after they left and because of some of the other leadership changes that we had, we began to sort of build out and set up RevOps as the sort of like fourth leg of the stool on the go-to-market team. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I, I think that going through that story, I kind of pulled a couple of things. So I just want to put this into a tactical. And so when I think about the first part of from the field, it's like, how do you come into an organization, establish revenue operations? Um, and I was thinking, okay, so one, if I could give these tips just, and you can tell me if you agree, one is prove <laughs> your value. So come in and yeah. know that like trust, like two things always happen in, in most organizations, regardless of when you come in and how established something is, is usually they bring someone like me or someone like you in because they've lost uh, faith in operations, right? Yeah. And so you need to come in, prove your value by being a helpful person person on the team, learn context from the field. I always tell everyone that like, yeah, I know how to solve a lot of problems. I'm technical, I'm strategic. I'm all of these things. Cause I'm, you know, a person who does revenue operations. I have to be a generalist across a lot of things. So I have a lot of skill, but the salespeople, the marketers, the, all these people, they have the context of what the scenario is. And so I heard you saying like, you came in and yep. you got context and that was why we were slow to restructure everything is cause you wanted yep. to make sure you had the context. It wasn't about being kind it was about understanding the context so that you can make decisions because you had already know that the value of operations had been damaged at that organization, right? Yep. My third point that you said is 
establish faith in operations. And you did that through two major ways. One was uh, repeatable definitions, making sure that people were speaking the same language, which I think yes. is something that is widely overlooked in RevOps, which is yes. you have to establish a new uh, vernacular, uh, essentially, to up-level the conversation. And then you increase visibility both to the executives and to the board, which I think is an amazing, amazing feat. Um, and then you did a lot of eliminating the square peg syndrome, which which is one of the values that we don't talk about that much in RevOps, which is, like you said, there were consultants in Salesforce. And if you hire a Salesforce consultant, then every problem looks like a Salesforce problem, where every problem looks like a feature gap problem, where every, so that's one of the major reasons why technically RevOps makes so much sense compared to deep specialization is because you look at your entire uh, ecosystem and go, where can I solve this? What's the best way to uh, yes. that's going to be the most impactful versus the square peg syndrome. Yeah. And then, uh, so like those kind of things, I think are really a solid framework for how do you go in, regardless if there's a RevOps function or not, establish trust and then understand and how to like pull out the stuff. Because I've seen so many people um, not go in with a framework in mind. Right? Yeah. And, and, and I think that they need to have that framework. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, personally, it's, it's really, it's been, a really challenging lesson and approach because I am a doer, right? Like I think a lot of most RevOps people are, right? Yes. Like they, they're deep generalists. They can do all the things. Um, and I like doing a lot of the things. Uh, I'm also a perfectionist. And when, what, what, what my experience at Pet Desk has forced me to do and what, what kind of building a RevOps team from scratch has forced me to do is a slow down and realize that I can't do everything. I need to be able to kind of like share that knowledge and create an example of like, like product ownership basically yes. for the systems and the data. Right. Yeah. And, and the processes, like this is, this is a collaboration, a collaborative role. We are not just a send me your request and I go do the thing. We're not just admins. Like we are owners um, and how do you, how do you kind of instill that in a team that is central, but has to work that like, but like deeply embedded is kind of how I described it is like, uh, I have a, you know, I have a, a marketing ops manager who reports to me, but he, he is deeply embedded in our demand gen team. He joins all their standups, goes to all their meetings, has developed those relationships. But I, the way it, when I, when I hired him, I was like, you know, I need you to kind of focus on the day-to-day -day users and systems for our demand gen team, but I also need you to be the ops brain in the room when our marketing people are getting overly excited about some idea that you know is just not going to work, <laughs> like not right. going to be feasible, right? Like I need you to be that noisy duck because I can't be in all those meetings. Yeah, listen for um, the pain, not the solution. <laughs> yes, like, I, you yeah. know, one thing that I would train a uh, tactical piece of advice from the field here is the more that you can train your, your business partners to express the pain or frustration or give the context for what they're trying to accomplish versus solutioning it for the operations team. Yeah. Because as soon as they start to solution it, there's an expectation of how this is going to be done versus yeah. if you take an operational approach, there's 50, everyone knows if you pull up a, you know, a diagram of your systems, there's 50 entry points for every single thing. If you have something like Zoom Info or Chorus, there's, there's all these uses yeah. for all these technologies that aren't being utilized because the team didn't know they existed, right? Or the team doesn't understand that, oh, that looks is looked like a sales tool, but you're like, actually this functionality I'm not thinking about these things anymore as sales tools, marketing yeah. tools, well, CS tools. I'm thinking about them as a holistic ecosystem that supports the customer and the business to your point. Right. And I think, you know, there was, when you, when you have, when you set up a team, that's just like admins, right? Like you have a Salesforce admin and you have a HubSpot admin, you have a Tatango admin, um, you know, a, a, a Tableau admin, whatever. Um, I think you, you fall into you fall into a pattern of just going in and like fixing stuff, yeah. but not actually helping the end user a understand what they did wrong. Cause like nine times out of 10, we all know it's usually user error mm -hmm. or like not understand like why it's important that they do this. Right. And I think that that's like, that's like the bigger thing. And, and part of the reason why I didn't immediately backfill that sales Salesforce admin role when, when she left, like two weeks after I started at Pet Desk is that I wasn't convinced that that was like the, the right resource for the team because of how 
collaborative this that I, I wanted this function to be. And, and uh, there are amazing Salesforce admins there out there that really treat everything like, like they're like, like a product owner, but they're few and far, far between. Right. So I really wanted to be product owner first and learn the technical stuff later. Right. That's it's a huge like, tactical piece of advice product yeah. owner first. You know, one thing you said is, um, in order for RevOps to be successful, you have to, and this is where I think admins fall into sometimes, you have to rise above efficiency, Yeah. right? Where, mean, meaning that, yes, you can see how this would be beneficial to the sales team or speed up the sales team's process. But if it has no value to the customer or business, then it's busy work for the sake of creating, creating something that doesn't actually have value, but feels valuable, right? And I think that's the big thing that's hard about being in RevOps and where RevOps has to sort of live, which is if it benefits the customer in the business and it impacts efficiency, well, that's amazing, right? But some things that revenue operators have to make the hard decision to do makes efficiency worse or, yeah. or, or makes things harder on the business. Like I, I sort of prescribe to this idea that I want to make an aligned teams but that's hard work and yeah. every stage of the, of the evolution of our, of our tech stack or of our pro processes, excuse me, whatever it is, it, it has to have something bigger than reducing clicks. It has to have something bigger than these things or else we end up building in the same thing for product management. You end up building this like amorphous blob thing yeah. that has no beginning and middle and end you end up begin just going in whatever direction that the organism wants to go in. And, and that can be very disruptive for the long-term success of the business. I, I would add to that, that two things. I think one is along with that, RevOps also needs to not be afraid of doing some manual work. Yes. You know, I, and I think that's like, that's hard for people who really want to be able to automate everything. But sometimes like it just makes the most sense that a manual function just sits in RevOps. Sometimes it just makes the most sense there. Yeah. And a lot of the a lot of the times when that kind of conversation has come up is or, or like when um, when I've had to make that decision has been around, well, by asking one of our salespeople to do this, how much time is that taking away from them spending time with our customers? You know, my one of my biggest questions is like, how do we create, how do we create more customer facing time for our end users? Like that's my goal. Right. And if, if it's not data that only they can know by like talking to the customer, then let's figure out either a way to automate it. Or sometimes we just need to go and check and fill some, something in after them. And then I think the other piece is I have added friction within some processes because of how critically important the information is. So like list ingesting is painful for us in our industry because A, there's a ton of turnover in veterinary, in the veterinary world. So, you know, Marsha mm -hmm. used to work at ABC clinic and now she works down the street at JW clinic and we don't have that in our system and we scanned her badge and it looked like one and not the other and all these things. Also, vet veterinarians are like horribly not creative when naming their vet practices. So yep. we can't use like company name as a unique identifier at all. And then also they don't have company domain emails. So it's, it's like a lot of shared service at, you know, vet clinic yep. or personal emails, but it's so important that that information is ingested properly, that we take a lot of time to make sure that it's right. We take a ton of time matching and cleaning it up and it, frust it frustrates the hell out of our team, but I, I, I won't budge on it because it's, it just creates so many more problems down the road. Right. And I don't want our SDRs figure it's like figuring out that there's, you know, 500 duplicates because of the last show. hundred percent. Uh, short sidebar before we move on to the next thing. Uh, my mom, uh, managed a vet clinic that used pet desk. Um, oh, awesome. And her big problem was the turnover and how, how yeah. people move between the industry and not knowing that that was a data problem. She's talked about all of those problems in, in, in the past to me yep. about her trying to operationalize uh, the veterinarian clinic that she works at. So that's, that's really a, a fun 
That's to. awesome. Uh, one thing, and th this could be short because I think we've touched on it to it a lot, but what is the value of revenue operation? If, if you were talking to a CEO, let's start there, yeah. talking to a CEO who's thinking about implementing revenue operations and you had an elevator ride to tell them what the value of that was, what would be your talk track? I think um, my bullet points would probably be better data visibility and um, more consistent just data analysis. Um, and I think bullet point number two is that RevOps enables your executives to spend more time doing the strategic thinking, having strategic conversations, having those coaching conversations versus preparing a bunch of slides for board reports and sales reviews and stuff like yeah. that. Like Updates RevOps can, like yeah, yeah, RevOps gets to help with some of that work. Um, I think number three, um, having a team or a person, depending on how your org is, that is solely dedicated to does this process make sense? Is this the right way to look at this data? And are we leveraging our systems in a way so they are working for us? Takes all of that weight off of the teams that should be spending more time with your customers. Amazing. One thing I wrote down is the customer engagement uh, time. I have this whole theory that most things in marketing, sales, customer success, that are metrics, KPIs are mostly vanity KPIs. They're about reinforcing the structure of the sales team as reinforcing the structure of the marketing team. MQLs, SQLs is an example. Of, I don't find that to be much value. Uh, it is a thing that we measure, but it's not a thing that necessarily adds a lot to me understanding if things are going to convert into dollars and cents for right. the organization. And I really like the idea of trying to up-level this customer engagement time as a key KPI, which would lead to revenue growth. Right. Have you operationalized customer engagement time? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I love, actually, to be honest, I don't think I've ever thought about that. And I feel really silly that I haven't. I think that's a great, um, a great way to kind of show the proof in the pudding, to be honest. And I, I agree with you. We're actually having like this huge like KPI metrics kind of rehash at Pet Desk right now. Um, because I think there, there's like two sides to it, right? Like I, I've gotten us to a point where we're all talking about revenue goals, about the big goals of the business. We understand what the funnel looks like. We understand like the kind of touch points and the metrics down the funnel. Um, but there's, there's also, also those deeper things on the teams that need to happen. And it's really hard for most people to set like really meaningful KPIs um, that align to those big business goals. Right. So we've been, we've been really focusing on that um, because I was tired of having conversations of like, yeah, things are going well. <laughs> Like, doesn't tell me right. anything. We're yeah, dialing you need them a to lot. Have a compass, right? I <laughs> yeah. mean, that's an important We're dialing part of a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think that we're getting to this new age of RevOps because at first it was like, hey, we need to get these core ideas up to the executive level or up to people who are making strategic decisions. And now we're starting to talk about what are the KPIs that you need to make at a tactical decision level, yeah. which obviously that's the point of a KPI. But I feel like because of how bad that data structure is, how bad that org structure was, what KPIs were all about was like trying to get the information up to the executives. And then the KPIs that are effective for a field marketer or uh, someone, uh, a sales person are different, are different right. for them to actually do their job better. And I think yeah. that's where RevOps is now, which is we're asking like, what are the, the signals that are going to actually make this person's job more effective, effective not right. efficient, effective at the long-term yeah. goal, right? Because you can't just give someone say, we do it all the time in sales. You have a 600K budget. I mean, you have a 600K quota. Okay, well, how do I know if I'm in the right direction? Is it activities? Is it right. connections? Is it deals? Is it, and you're like, it's all of it. And it's like, okay, well then I don't really know how to focus myself. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think we're, we're have in that conversation point right now. Yeah, and I, I, I think, you know, the, the, a lot of the vanity metrics to me, and this is again, an argument for why RevOps should be central, centralized not living in sales, not living in demand gen, but really a truly like centralized org is that 
a lot of them are about job justification. You know, it's like, okay, well, we're making all our dials or, you know, we sent all these emails or we went to these shows, but that that's like almost like measuring busy work. Right. And until you can tell me how that aligns to the revenue goals that you have. Right. Like, and, and RevOps is able to really push the, the conversations towards that. Right. Because it's just like, okay, tell me, tell me how, tell me how and why this matters to this number. Right. And, um, and is able to kind of advocate for true metrics that are really going to help push the, the needle forward. Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, let's shake it out a little bit because we're going to move on to quick fire questions that have nothing to do with revenue operations or does oh, geez. It? Okay. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. Reading fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Fiction, why? Because I love sci-fi. I like cannot love get sci-fi. enough of it. love sci-fi. What a nerd. I know, huge nerd. Uh, type notes or handwritten notes? Handwritten notes. Handwritten notes. I I was like, oh my god, I hope she doesn't think I'm not paying attention. I was writing all the all the stuff down. Definitely handwritten notes. Why? I feel like it forces me to be more concise about what my idea is than when I'm typing something, which it can become very verbose. I like it because um, when I was growing up, I had a teacher tell me that you remember things better if you actually write it down. And now I feel like things stick in my head when I write it versus when I type it. You don't have to say it because we're on a podcast, but do you remember the teacher's name? Uh, Mrs. Lyons, I think Mrs. was Lyons. her name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, if, I was going to say, if you don't, you should have written it down. You probably remember <laughs> that. Uh, webinars or long form content? This is an old marketing question. Um, I think it depends on the industry and depends on the customer. Okay. So what's right for Pet, pet Desk? Uh, I think for Pet Desk, um, I think webinars, but recorded webinars are like on-demand webinars, not necessarily a lot of live webinars. So like someone signing up and just choosing that they want to engage with this content when they engage with it. Yes. It's like a webinar set up for them. Yep. Is, is that because it, the buyer, is the buyer for Pet Desk, sorry, I'm just getting, yeah. you just piqued my curiosity. Is the buyer for Pet Desk uh, the uh, veterinary owner, the, the office owner? It, normally it's usually the office manager. So it's your mom is usually like the, the kind of driver there. Sometimes in some clinics, they are like very empowered to be the decision maker. Sometimes they're just like the champion to the end. They're get, getting the paper signed. Right. Um, but it's usually that, that, that practice manager, office manager, that's really, uh, driving that ship. And so because veterinarian clinics mostly, I mean, I know there's corporate veterinarian clinics, but since they're mostly operated like small businesses, is it hard? Is it finding that the engagement with the office manager off hours, off, off of the, of yeah, the standard? They're work? so busy. Be nice, like be nice to your veterinarians. Everybody who's listening to this podcast, like they're they are working their asses off in an industry that is underappreciated and undervalued. They're underpaid. They're overworked. They don't have enough people. They have high turnover. And everybody adopted pets during the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a lot more customers. So it, having like a, 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 like a scheduled, like show up at this time type of webinar, just it, it, we do get engagement with it. But I think from a, from our, for our customers, it's so much better if they can kind of like choose their own adventure and, and consume that on their own time. Amazing. Uh, last quick fire question, meetings like this, like a, a meeting or asynchronous co- collaboration. Uh, I think it has to be a mix of both. Well, that's a pretty pragmatic answer. What if I, what if I said there was no such thing as a mix of the both and you have to choose? Um, I, what world would you want to live in eight hours of meetings or eight hours of asynchronous uh, collaboration on Slack? Well, I would want to live in eight hours of asynchronous collaboration, collaboration on Slack. However, I think you can't you, you miss something, um, when you're not able to just have a conversation about things too. All right. Open-ended question time. Favorite meal of all time. Ooh. Um, so my husband and I, for our honeymoon, we went to Europe. This is like six or seven years ago now. And we went to, um, Brussels, uh, a Bruges in Brussels. 
or sorry, Bruges in Belgium. And we ate at this brewery called Bruges Zot that makes this incredible uh, Belgian style beer. And I had the most glorious asparagus soup <laughs> that like was just magical, like Bruges Zot from the tap. It was like kind of stormy outside and we were sitting in this beautiful cafe and the soup was like so fresh and so good. I, I cried. It was you, so delicious. Uh... You nailed this question. Most people can't nail. Like if you asked me what my favorite meal was, I was like, ah, I just pick something from grilled cheese last night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, excellent answer. Um, last question, and this is a little bit of a, a difficult one. What is an opinion that you have right now that you're starting to think is incorrect? <sighs> um. So I really thought that if you, that anybody could be a, a decent data analyst, like I felt, I really thought that like everybody on my team could develop like a really strong data acumen. I could do relatively, not like super complex or like with like multidimensional kind of analysis, but could do like rel relatively quick analyses that were deep and insightful and told a story. I am not 100% convinced of that. Um, I still think they could get there, but I don't, I don't think everybody's brain is cut out to be a data storyteller. And I yeah, also don't think- both the left think, and right side to your point earlier, right? Yeah, and also just like are open enough to approach a question in a way that like is not assumptive, right? Like you mm -hmm. kind of have to be a true explorer if you're gonna go down that route. Amazing. What's your husband's name? Ben Cohen. Ben. You should tell Ben uh, for me, thank you very much for <laughs> introducing you to Revenue Operations and how amazing uh, and talented you are and oh, all the you. amazing work that you're doing to transform people's lives. Like, the, the thing that I get so excited about Revenue Operations is, is giving importance and value to, some, to, to people who ran businesses but never got the seat at the table that they so yeah. richly deserved. And it's so amazing to see all of uh, the RevOps uh, world kind of unite and come together for conversation. So thank you, Ben, and thank you, Kelsey. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Have a good day. You too. Bye.